This is Faux Real, a podcast where I chat with indie filmmakers about their filmmaking processes, their inspirations, and what their stories mean to them. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt. On this week's episode, I talked to documentary filmmaker Austin Peck for his film Ranger. My name's Austin Peck. I am the director of a documentary film called Ranger that tells the story of a group of women from central and northern Kenya who become the first anti-poaching unit, all-female ranger unit in the region in East Africa. And the film is really about the way that they become rangers, the way that they attain this position of authority, and really more about the world that they come from culturally as women in this region and how revolutionary it is to hold a job, hold a position of authority, and to have all that responsibility. And also really about the process through which they become transformed. That was a beautiful description. So as I believe you know, I saw your film at Mountain Film Fest at the morning, at the Palm, your first screening there. And it was so beautiful. Like your film was at 9.30 a.m. And I'm not even usually awake at that time. So I, and I didn't even really know exactly what I was rolling into. But I was like, holy cow. The whole audience was just constantly like on and off tears. And then I got up to go to the bathroom real quick at one point. When I came back, I sat in the back row to like not be disturbing the audience. And I ended up sitting next to, unbeknownst to me, next to your wife and child, which was the coolest thing because at the end I was just crying, but your wife was just, she was so proud. I think of seeing you on stage and the story on screen, but also your child like knew the people on screen. And it was just like, it was so, it was such a cool way to see the film. I, that's really a credit to you a for showing up at nine 30 in the morning to, <laughs> to see a film. I was blown away that there were people at Mountain Film who are so enthusiastic about patronizing, about showing up and like doing their part to keep this medium alive. And I've never, honestly, never been to a film festival where that happens as intentionally as Mountain Film. So, and it's a credit to Mountain Film that you and a handful of others were there in the morning, wide open, hearts, eyes to just take something in. And like you said, you didn't totally know, you couldn't have known what you're about to watch. No one prepared you. I didn't. (laughs) There was certainly some things that at 9.30 AM, I was shocked to see. I will say (laughs) brightener. (laughs) Yeah. The opening scene tends to kind of put people at the back of their seat a little bit. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, I just wanted to get this conversation started with you. It's just kind of the baseline of how you first heard about this story and got involved with this story and this project. Yeah, I had been living in that area on and off for about a decade. I I was living between the more rural edge of of Kenya, the Laikipia County area and north of there, Samburu County and Nairobi. I've been going back and forth between the capital city and the bush basically for about 10 years. And a very close friend of mine runs a conservancy in that area. Took it on about 15 years ago as this abandoned flower plantation, basically. It was this dried up scab of land in an Eden-like place around that area. It had been so neglected. And the per- my friend who, who took on that conservancy, you know, to the 
shock of everyone in the region, you know, was telling people I'm going to rewild this place. And it was more than that. It was more than like planting trees and sort of regenerating an ecosystem. It was about involving people and the communities that surround these conservancies, which is a very progressive concept in general. There's more of a tradition of walling those people out, you know, simplifying them to poacher, villain, uh, trespasser, this kind of thing. And they, in turn, look back an extension of the colonial era of foreigners who occupy land that their ancestors used to hunt on, right? So this is like the old paradigm. My dear friend, thankfully, wants to smash that and to sort of reestablish some type of equilibrium between people and environment in this area. And one of the aspects, one of the the facets of that is accessing uh, for the first time this incredible wellspring of power in women, in these communities who have never been a part of this equation formally. And so he and his wife, this is 15 years down the road when there are lots of animals there now, you know, grazers, predators, grasses are back, the rivers are running. It's, it's incredible what happens when you, you know, invest in that kind of thing. Um, So there's something there to protect. And an extension of their philosophy was this, you know, stewardship from the community and women are as good or better at that than anyone. So they said, let's do this, you know, and they had a friend who had been doing something similar in Zimbabwe named Damien Mander. I believe the name of his group was Akashinga. And, you know, some really cool short films with Nat Geo have come out about their process of women becoming rangers down there. Definitely more militarized, not so much what you saw in, in my film, rite of passage, personal like trauma release, empowerment through that mechanism, different philosophy Damien brought there, but nonetheless, women became rangers. So my dear friend had the, the, this person as a consultant, they found a facilitator and this was all happening kind of unbeknownst to me. And then my pal called me and said, Hey, I know you're in the area. Please come down to the recruitment day. This is happening next week and see if there's something there. And I think what he had in mind was probably a short fundraising film to keep the program going. The thing is funded charitably. And of course, I think, um, you know, after seeing what happened on day one, it was so profound. And the people who showed up and what energy they showed up with it was met by this completely unorthodox facilitator that I did not expect in this man, Shane, an English man, you know, shows up in Kenya to train a bunch of Samburu and Maasai women that did on the surface look like the old world. And then what he started doing was not the old world. No, so just to wrap, I was there for day one, just to kind of see if there was uh, something special that was going to happen. And indeed there, there was. There definitely was. I wanted to talk to you more about that, what you were just talking about. You referenced it as the old world and like an equilibrium and things like that. But I'm curious to hear a few things what the dynamics were like in any form of maybe like adjustments or anything that you had to make to sort of gain these women's trust to be able to tell their story because you are a white man coming into this situation. And like, what was that sort of situation like for you as a storyteller and just even being in that environment with them? Yeah. Before I was engaged to begin being a filmmaker there. I was a part of this community for a long time. Since I made my first movie, 
about two hours from there to the north. You know, I, I learned the language. I just was in a place where there was no English spoken and I became kind of this oddity in this place. And so when you are that oddity, over time, the, the sort of peculiar clown-like presence that you bring, you know, this like curiosity for everything, apparently no agenda, these things are in a way a little bit disarming. And I never really deviated from that. I just kind of was undergoing a, a growth of my own, falling in love with making movies, falling in love with Africa again. I had been there, you know, when I was 19 to go to school in South Africa and at the time, I, you know, I had no idea the nuance all over the continent. You know, I just wanted to get back to those feelings, right? But anyways, the, the community knew me, but then to specifically like switch on as, okay, time to be filmmaker now. And I've got a camera and all the added responsibility that comes with that. It was also very gradual. Showing up that day, there was it was impossible to communicate to the, say, 300 women that were auditioning for this job, you know, competing to be selected for this group of 12, I think they just assumed that I was part of the program, you know, and that like this person is, this is like some NGO guy and he's recording what's happening here for either like further interviewing us or for promotion of this program. I think that sort of framework initially was, was probably what they assumed. And then when this first selection made it into this dorm, then I, explain to everybody who I am, what I do, where this can go, and then offered basically myself to be a part of their process at every single step. And as a, uh, a witness and as a confidant, as a, as a safe male, as a partner, as a foreign person as well. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, techniques and things don't I wasn't necessarily competing with an existing paradigm around, around any of this stuff. It was super alien. All that said, it, Shane, the facilitator, and the women quickly went into this rhythm of check-ins every day, every morning. There was a group sit, a group meditation, and then a group share, basically. And you know, every morning, we, it was like dawn, and we would say what was on our mind. And so the camera was around, basically, from the beginning, but not in an inorganic way. And I think they had some feeling of my partnership with Shane and a philosophical alignment. And that, you know, the first two weeks were actually really intense. A lot of the emotional work that's in the film took place in the first two weeks. And so, you know, they went right into the deep end really quickly. And I did a lot of those processes with them. Shane did a lot of those processes with them. And so the camera was secondary, but I think the, the like speaking the language is a big part of it, but also just being really extremely present is something that men are not with women in their communities. It may have felt good or, or different. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I'm curious too, since I had the opportunity to sit with your wife and child, like what part they played in this or like what it was like to have them on set or like, and I don't know if they even were on set, but your child seemed to know the people in the film. So I'm curious about that dynamic and role that that maybe played. And maybe that got you closer to the women because they're all mothers, things like that. Totally right on that. That's a really, it's a good insight. Our house was, you know, about a hundred yards from their dorm and we're all, all these little old structures are along this river there. And we lived 
for a year in the old ranch manager's house from, you know, the sixties or whenever that thing was built and this beautiful setting and the kitchen where they would eat was the same kitchen where we would cook our, you know, charcoal stuff as well. And so there was this kind of like <laughs> watering hole, like flow between our house and theirs. But my wife, Melanie is a, is a midwife and she's from Quebec. She's been a midwife for 15 years, caught, you know, hundreds of babies. And she's very, very good at what she does. And she uses midwifery as a vehicle for transformation and empowering women. And that's more of what she does. I think showing up for labor is, is a formality and, you know, it's super important, but I think the, the preparation, the months before and after birth, she is there to initiate women into a new form of, of like looking at themselves as they become mothers all of that said, you know, these women are all mothers, except for one, the, the women that participated in the program. And Melanie was doing sort of reproductive clinic work with them at the house, giving them IUDs, which is like really taboo. You can't in this community do that. <laughs> so there was an alliance between my wife and them very quickly. That was the work that she wanted to do while she was there. She said, look, I can do this for you and then we'll do it at the house. Come on by if you're interested. And there were 11 women there that day of the 12, you know, one of them was trying to get pregnant. So, <laughs> so she wasn't there. And, but also having harmony around is magical. And unlike the U S where children are an imposition, most of the time in this society we live in they're they're hard to deal with. No one can sort of step into child mode and talk to them. These women are like never, it, never away from that headspace. It's so ubiquitous. It's atmospheric, the energy of children. And so having harmony there, I think also gave us another thing to share, another language to speak. Yeah, let's speak kid right now together. Great. Oh, I love that. That's really cool. I like grew up like tag teaming along with my dad doing a lot of stuff, but I feel like it was not, there was no child, <laughs> like let's speak child. It was like uh, me learning to speak adult. <laughs> so it's a little bit different. But <laughs> She's doing that too, though. I mean, we watched the Northman last night, which was mm. <laughs> not really something you do with a six-year-old, but anyways, we're, we are, we don't have firm rules around what kids should and shouldn't be, should not be doing. And Harmony's growing up quickly and she's seen the world more than most adults already, but yeah, it's disarming to have a, a kid around. And especially, uh, you know, again, like her race is also like a little white girl barefoot and mud on her face is totally different than what they expect that to look like, you know, they kind of imagine our kids to look like little Barbie dolls or something. And then they meet this little wildling and it's like, oh, wow, great. They just expect you, I imagine, to be very like extractive of resource, everything. Yeah, I assume. (laughs) So I have no idea. Maybe this question doesn't belong in this interview because it sounds maybe a little bit different. But I recently spoke to this filmmaker, Claudia Sparrow, who made a film Maxima out in the Andes, very like isolated And when I was speaking with her, we had a really interesting conversation about logistical ways to go about filmmaking or like logistical hurdles when you're in an environment that isn't necessarily typical. And I was wondering if you 
encountered anything like that, like down to like power transportation. Like it sounds like you live nearby, but like basic things that maybe are taken for granted in the filmmaking world on other locations. I feel like a fish out of water in the U S making films here. I am more bewildered by the things you have to do in this culture. The first film I ever made was in an area far more rural than Ranger. And I was penniless and, you know, we were robbed over and over again and had to sort of barter to get our equipment back. And, you know, there was like, there were little, like, little, like initiations that happened back then that I assumed kind of were going to be normal for me. And I never really left there, you know, so it was 12 years of, of like, dealing with a guy in Nairobi who could source me an adapter from Dubai in two days. But living in the house where we lived on this one, power was an issue. Everything's off grid. It was solar. And, you know, I was sort of dumping cards all the time and that's incredibly energy consuming. And so we would just drain our batteries and we wouldn't be able to like toast things or, (laughs) you know, so like running on solar is a consideration, but I chose a camera that was, extremely robust for this kind of filmmaking at the time it's since spawned, you know, new versions of itself, but it was a Sony FS five Mark II, which was this great little super 35, really long battery life had this awesome kind of resistance to like dust or rain. Like it was just a good weather ready, small light, reliable football of a camera, you know, and the form factor was really unintimidating. I would never put it up on my shoulder and be like, tell me your story. Like the camera is sort of sitting in the lap a lot of times, or, you know, you're holding it out there like a flashlight following someone through the bush or something. That's a big decision to not overtech yourself. And I think there might be a tendency to do that. We There's a running joke, you know, when we would come in and out of Nairobi, you would see these people getting off the airplane wearing like those pants that zip off at the knee, you know, like as if they're going to be on safari and like need to cross a river, which is so laughable, but like that, Oh my God, I'm going to Africa. I better be ready for anything, you know, is nonsense. I mean, it depends. Like the person you spoke to who sounds like they did a mountain expedition. More or less. Yeah. She's from Peru too. So she had like decent experience in the area but yeah she was very isolated no power they had to trek all of their gear and for miles and things like that there was one scene in the ranger where it was extreme which was to carry gear for 100 miles unsupported basically and so that and including water whatever you're going to eat sleep with it was an endurance march for the women at the end of their training you know oh my it, was supposed, gosh. it was supposed to be very grueling and it was and the altitude was insane the humidity then dry then humid and we went over sort of a sawtooth range that i think is one of the most beautiful places in the world in samburu county the namanyak range and you know it was a it was like a sacred origin of their tribe kind of place you know it's obvious when you look up at those mountains that there's like <laughs> some sort of portal to another dimension up there. And that's their origin story. You know, it's on t- top of those mountains that they descended from Venus. Like this is, oh, this is, wow. very, yeah, it's really amazing. And so to like put everything in a big old backpack, I actually use my wife's midwifery backpack, this humongous low pro that could carry batteries for a drone batteries for the camera, the drone itself, you know, the camera never went in the bag. It was just sort of guitar strapped around me 
thankfully there were water springs up there where we could, you know, I've never actually experienced thirst like I did those days. It's a really scary feeling, thirst. I drink water all day, every day. I I can't even imagine. This would be a useful time for a, an amazing plug. Like <laughs> I, in the gift bag at Mountain Film was this electrolyte mixture called LMNT element. Did you get any of this? I while didn't. It was everywhere. I'm completely addicted. It's really, really good. And Mountain Film and Element were genius to put it in our little tote bags because I'd like just spent a hundred dollars on it. Oh man. Sounds like you need that sponsorship. I know, right? Element. <laughs> Get on Brought it. Brought to you by. Yeah. <laughs> to look so. into it. Well, I wanted to kind of go back to some of the things you were talking about earlier and more of the emotional aspects of the filmmaking. So as you were referencing, like these women are going through this process of becoming rangers in as you said, the most unorthodox way. I mean, I can't imagine that other people are doing this, but it was so cool. They're going through all of these sort of, you can probably describe better, but like, it's like trauma responses and bringing up trauma and using that trauma in order to find like your passion and your fight. And, but also your ability to be calm and like clear headed. And so I'm curious, like as a filmmaker, when you're watching some of these things unfold before your very eyes, but also like in front of your lens. And these women are like crying. They're like going through like physical responses to the things that they're, you know, thinking about. Like, what is that like to see that and know that you're capturing that? And it's part of the story and it's really cool, but also like as a human being, like what is that sort of like? And is that a struggle sometimes? Or do you ever have to just stop for your own mental health or to talk to these women while they're going through that? Like what, what is, talk to me about that. That is the most precious experience of my adult life. Like other than maybe the, you know, the, my family happening and these things, you know, but being a part of that transformation in real time with those women is something that permanently changed me because being in a small room with 12 women who are desperately committed to ridding themselves of this pain. They're not one foot in, one foot out in there. They were totally, completely committed. And when it would begin, you could sort of see the energy swell in say, you know, if it was a, everyone in their own, it would happen as a group. But if it was one person and the group was holding space for that person, you could feel the group unifying and you could feel that one person stepping into something very profound. And then there you are. And as a filmmaker, you can, it, it would be different on different days, but some days you would become invisible. I would not be there to them. They were doing something so important that I was truly a fly on the wall no matter where the camera was. And a lot of the time it was within arm's length, you know, just to be as close as possible. Other times I kept the camera rolling, kept it exposed and focused and was just bawling, you know, and they could see that. And in my eyes, I am locked in with what they are experiencing and they know that I know. 
That happened many, many times too. And other times I feel like there might've been a approving where fuck yeah, the camera is here was the vibe, you know, <laughs> I hope someone sees this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a reason, you know, filmmaking's a thing. Documentaries are a thing. So right. it certainly has a place in these moments but but not not my not my desire for someone to see it hers right like i need to be witnessed here you know that it was like yes this is evidence that i'm doing that i'm confronting this thing you know yeah yeah i want to talk about an element of this that is a little bit more tangible and maybe skirts the lines of ethics when it comes to filmmaking and in your film this happens in documentaries all the time, but in your film, the example I saw was when there was a one woman who is going through the process of losing her home because she can't pay because this, you know, a landowner decided to show up and out, basically out of the blue demand payment from her that she could not afford. And I'm curious because it's, I can imagine that it's so complicated as a person, like you're probably not wealthy. And even if you were, what obligation or ethical obligation do you feel as a filmmaker to like step in in those moments or not? This answer will like totally be controversial no matter how, what, a, what, what side of this, you know, you land on because this person needs you or needs help. They need help and you could give it no matter, no matter if you're poor or, you know, unlimitedly like wealthy, like you, you can help a person in that situation. I wanted her story to land. I wanted evidence of her transformation through this house. Damaris, the character that you're referring to, her trauma was in those walls. It was in that home, that little thing that she survives in with her family is not a home. And she really grapples with that as a sense of her identity. She's at times reminded of her victimhood in this life. And it's written all over the place in that little, she's caring for other people's kids. She's caring for her own. Where are the men? Where is anyone? And she is such a survivor, Damaris. And I'll tell you just a backstory quickly on Damaris is that during the selection process, when there were 30 coming down to 12, the facilitator Shane asked everyone to choose women, choose a woman from the group if they had to go into conflict with someone from the 30, who would it be? The answer was nearly unanimously Damaris. And half of the women knew her, half did not. And so that's an incredible testament, isn't it? The ones who knew her, really knew her, yeah, Damaris is has got my back. And the ones who didn't know her could figure it out really quickly. She is such a survivor. And she had the most, uh, of all of the women, the most tangible material object that represented her, her trauma and her place in that community. And she needed to burn it down. Like she needed to physically destroy it. And Shane held, the facilitator Shane held a, a meeting because Damaris was faced with this pressure, her kids were made homeless in an afternoon. And, you know, they're absorbed into temporary situations with the aunties and, you know, in, in the area, but that wasn't a lasting solution. And so Demra was like pretty close to having to leave the program. And so Shane 
was like, this is great. This is an opportunity for us to figure out what to do. And he just got the girls in a circle and opened up the conversation to them. And, you know, this would have been in the film, I think, but I feel like what ended up happening, I don't think you needed to see the mechanism by which they came to her aid, where the group decided to march out of the conservancy in uniform and in broad daylight, knock the house down, not pay this person. What a symbol that these 12 women showed up and brought their kids and smashed this place. What a, you know, <laughs> what a demonstration of collective solidarity. And so there was no need that day for me to do anything other than capture what they were doing. But this dilemma arises again and again and again. And the film that I'm working on now, you know, there's a, one of my characters is a 14 year old kid sort of on the wrong side of the tracks in Milwaukee who is getting into dealing drugs, just like his dad did. He's in prison now. And like, I love this kid. Like I really do love him. I, I don't think I'll ever make a film where I don't love the people that are, it's, this might be my peculiar bend in filmmaking. I, I don't know if I could ever really do the objective thing, the Herzog thing, the, I don't care about you. I just want the truth thing. I don't know if I'm, that's ever going to be my bag. I do this other thing. <laughs> and so I am struck right now. And the guy I shoot with is new to documentary. He's racked with this need to intervene and to, to get into um, the kid's name is Lucas and to get into Lucas's world and straighten him out. And I'm, I'm not ready to do that. Basically. I'm not ready to straighten him out. And the truth is, is that I would need to intervene in such a way that is essentially a lifelong uncle role, big brother slash father in Lucas's case. And in so many of these cases, it's about replacing a parent, right? I mean, isn't that sort of the most common role that leads to catastrophe? Like if you take someone out of that equation, it's, um, it causes major lasting problems. And what are you, are, are you ready to take that on? Or are you going to do this delusional exercise for a while that soothes a feeling of guilt or obligation that is really just a reality that is inescapable. You know, I could, I could have left these troubled realities at any second and kind of gone back to the States and reinvented myself or whatever. Like, you know, I wasn't rich, but I was certainly with more resource than they, the characters in any of these films. But what are you going to do? Like, really, are you, you need to know what the intervention looks like in the fullness of time. Yeah, those are great points. And I think they can lead into something that I talked to pretty much everybody about too, is like, what is the role filmmaking plays in social justice work or human rights work? I mean, your film really has a lot. It's, you know, it's bringing women to somewhat the same level as men there. So what role does filmmaking play in this story and the greater picture? I think this film has a really fascinating duality in that locally it makes a very, it makes a hero, it makes a heroine <laughs> where there was not one before. And it's such a compelling argument of the, the worth and potential and the power that has been systemically uh, oppressed, overlooked, you know, and, and so I think the film in, in Kenya and in places like it, and I'm going to qualify that is to say that like 
rural African communities where the women have become entirely domestically attached, tethered. Um, in the pastoralist communities, the, the Ma, the Maasai, the Samburu, the Turkana, that's what's happened. The division of labor is, is not what it once was in a way, like the, the role that women needed to play was far more rangerly back in the true pastoralist way of living. Right. And, you know, th that way of life is, is getting more and more rare. And so the women are uh, finding less and less turf to call their own. Whereas the warrior way of life remains and they'd never let that go. You know, the, the men are entitled to, to all of those privileges. So to get back to your point, this film in Kenya or places where this, this incredible gender imbalance exists can safely bring a man or someone who holds prejudice or a woman who holds self-limitation to a new insight, I think. And it can do work in a very local way, particularly in Kenya. I, I mean, there are just so many riches that are hidden in between the lines in their humor and in their chemistry and in their girlishness and in their sage, old, wise, woman-ish phases. They do all of that, you know? I think Kenyans will really, really respond to this when they get a chance to, to see it en masse. The other side of this is that these are just human beings who are dealing with trauma very bravely. We all hold on to this stuff. And so I wanted audiences at say Mountain Film to imagine themselves there and not to applaud a social justice film that's gonna do work far away only, but to look at it as an invitation to look at rite of passage, look at ceremony, look at trauma, look at taking steps to reconnect to a group of people who are gonna go through something together, stuff that's like missing in our day and age here. You know, my wife and I were just talking about our, our marriage and like that is kind of the rite of passage that we're left with, right? There are, I mean, there are others, but not like in these communities. And so my, I guess the duality is, yeah, it's, it's going to do, I hope it's going to do really good work and the role of uh, good storytelling with lots of emotional wind, tailwind behind it to open hearts and to show whole people in a new and entertaining way. I think you have, so you also have the responsibility to entertain this like eat your spinach social justice film is I think honestly counterproductive unless you are headed for a courtroom and need to present evidence, which some films are. Some films are honestly instruments of legal argument or something like that, right? Or exposure. But less and less, I think we're also able to rely on like outrage to just grow in response to a Netflix film. And then suddenly policymakers are going to fear some sort of backlash and do something about it. I mean, you know, the Cove was an incredible example of this, the dolphin slaughter in Japan. And I think the film actually did make them hide it at least better than they were doing. So there was a, you know, something happened on the ground. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's gone into law or something like that, but. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, but I don't think you can expect social justice films to without an incredible plan in place of advocacy, touring, like doing what Stacey Abrams does, but like with a film, you know, that's kind of the reality we live in now. And a film is an incredible adjuvant to like to, to door knocking. You know, if you can, if 
that what a deadly combo if you actually have boots on the ground and you know a face and a hand that's ready to like stand there and, and hold that conviction in person with someone and talk to them and that's an amazing combination and i think that's like what a lot of granting agencies expect nowadays if they're going to give you money to make a film that's supposed to do work i think they want you to show that you're also serious about the long tail yeah that makes sense I'm going to bring up your child again one more time, sorry. but because I got to sit next to her at the film and we've talked about her a little bit, I'm curious, like how you think that being in this environment and seeing you make this film and seeing this film on screen will help shape her trajectory and her outlook on the world. I hope that she sees life as a chance to create lots of deep connections with people. And she's going to be tagging along with my wife and I, who are Rolling Stones. And everywhere we go, we try to, you know, um, to be extremely present and to create those lasting relationships. And I think the film, this film and any other that I make, I can't wait to like embark on another one that she is more aware of. You know, we shot Ranger a year and a half, two years ago now, more than that, two and a half years ago in 2019. And you know, she was still like a little proto emotional being back then. And um, she has memories of it, but the film, the film is an awesome reminder. And they're so visually oriented. Now these kids are like, want, like I have like nine pictures of my childhood and from those nine pictures, like I've re I filled in everything else. My daughter has like thousands of pictures and videos and I film her and it's just a different day and age, but I, I, I do hope that the long form like character study thing, the patience, the commitment, I'm going to indoctrinate her that that's super important. <laughs> Selfishly, like it's going to be important to her. It's the, the, the camera is a chance to, it's like a passport or something, or it's like a, an excuse to sit and listen to people. People need to testify. They, they need to be heard more and more. And what a beautiful privilege it is to to be in that position like when i'm filming things i i often think to myself somewhere in the back of my head that there's nowhere else i want to be i don't ever think of it as work i don't ever think of it as you know obviously it's difficult and you carry like you carry energy you carry other people's energy and you have to have a, like a practice of like dealing with that and not letting it consume you but i hope harmony my daughter just looks at these things as an avenue to connection and curiosity. I love that. I think it's awesome that she'll get to grow up with you as her dad and your wife as like two very inspiring and thoughtful doing work. That's very thoughtful and intentional. That means a lot. And so going back to what you were saying before, I just want to wrap it up with like, you make this film with a purpose, like, yes, it's to entertain, but it really has a message and a story that's important. Is there a way to support organization in the film or the women in the film? Mm. You had said it was charitably run. Yeah. The foundation that is the entity that, that raises the money for this program is called the Zeitz Foundation. The last name of the owner of that conservancy, Jochen Zeitz, he Z. E-I-T-Z, I think I got that right, as Ice Foundation. And it's Googleable, Kenya. And I, you know, at this point, we, we don't have a large fundraising apparatus in place. 
to that could go directly to that program. But you know, someone who's sufficiently curious would be totally welcome and kind of part of the tribe if they just dropped an email and said, "Hey, saw the movie. This is awesome. Um, how can I be involved?" I'd, you know, even if it means coming to Kenya, it means whatever, raising money where you live, or even something not related to Africa, but instead something around like our own emotional well-being here. Um, but also the other thing is, I, please help me get this film out there. Talk oh, yeah. about it. <laughs> that is my next thing. <laughs> How can yeah. people watch, support, and follow this film and you as a filmmaker? For now, the film is still going from one lily pad to the next on the, you know, with festivals similar to Mountain Film. I think the next place we're screening will be Woods Hole in New England. I think it's near Cape Cod, sort of towards the end of the summer. But going to festivals is not a reality for everyone. Thankfully, a lot of these festivals have a hybrid component now where you can, you know, buy a ticket and watch it online just, you know, as you watch all the other movies. And I think we had a, a good turnout online after the fest for Mountain Film. And, you know, if you get a chance, like vote for the film. If it wins an award, we get to talk to distributors with more authority. And so like... This is also just a lesson for anyone who wants to support documentary film or filmmakers, like get them the laurels, get like these distributors are tough to activate. And particularly when you come from this independent wing of things, it's super important to show up at a festival and help the buzz. Yeah. Are you guys on social media? Can they yeah. the film there? Or yeah. The website? Um, there's Ranger film dot com is the website and that's also the instagram handle ranger film cool i'll make sure all those links and everything are in the show notes ranger is still playing on the film festival circuit and it'll be playing a handful of festivals in december and early next year and they all have online components so no matter where you are you can check them out a couple of those festivals are the heartland film festival in indianapolis the JU Human Rights Festival in Toronto, the Frozen River Film Festival in Winona, Minnesota, and the Victoria Film Festival in British Columbia, which will be early next year. So check out those festivals, support the festivals, and support the film by watching it online, or if you're in any of those cities, you can see it in person. The music is Lost and Bound by Talene Kali. The podcast artwork is by Whitney Silgado. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt. You can follow the podcast at Faux Real Pod on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review if you haven't done so already. It's super helpful to help us reach more listeners. Thank you all so much. 